Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Foundations Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This weekly podcast is designed to accompany your discipleship group and help you build a strong foundation in the Christian faith. We want to equip you so you can be unleashed to obey Jesus' command to make disciples. We want to make Jesus' final words our first work. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Foundations Podcast. Last week, we looked at an overview of the storyline of the Bible. So if you haven't listened to that yet, make sure you go back and do that. Now, starting this week, we're going to look at each section of Scripture in a little bit more detail and see how they fit into this overarching narrative of Scripture. Now, to start this off, if you have a Bible handy or the next time you have a Bible handy, I want to encourage you to look at your table of contents. Now, a lot of people struggle with their understanding of the Old Testament. We'll get to the New Testament eventually, but we're going to start with the Old Testament today. And if we're honest, a lot of times the Old Testament sort of feels like this barren wasteland of confusion. But here's one thing that I think you'll find helpful. Looking at your table of contents for the Old Testament specifically, the first 17 books from Genesis to Esther give us the story of the Old Testament. So if you remember the Old Testament story that we covered last week, all of that is contained from Genesis to Esther, from creation to the return from exile. If you want to get the overall story of the Old Testament, you can just read those first 17 books. Then the next five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs are what we call the poetical books. These books, in a sense, give us man's response to the story covered in the first 17 books. Now that's a bit oversimplified, but we see, for example, in the Psalms, the prayers of man crying out to God in light of the events covered in the first 17 historical books. So the poetical books record man's response to the story of the Old Testament. Then the last 17 books of the Old Testament from Isaiah to Malachi are the prophetical books. These books are essentially God's commentary on the Old Testament story covered in those first 17 books. So what I want you to remember is this, 17, 5, 17. The first 17 books of the Old Testament give us the story or the history of the Old Testament. The next five books, the poetical books, give us man's response to that story. And then the last 17 books, the prophetical books, Give us God's commentary on that story. That alone will help you in understanding the Old Testament. 17, 5, 17. And understanding that not every book in the Old Testament moves the storyline along helps clear up a lot of confusion for people. Now, for the rest of our time today, I want us to focus on the first five books of the Bible, which are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These five books are often called the Pentateuch, which simply means five books. That's a good name. It's a fitting name. They're also called the Law or the Law of Moses by Jesus and the New Testament writers. They're called that because Moses, of course, wrote these five books. And as we're going to see, these five books are crucial to the rest of the Bible. They are foundational to all of Scripture. So let's start looking at these books. And we're going to start, of course, with the book of Genesis. Genesis means beginning, 
So it's a fitting title for the first book of the Bible. Now, looking at the structure of the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters really lay the foundation for the rest of the Bible. They're sort of like the prologue to the rest of Scripture. Chapters 1 through 11 really introduce most of the major themes that we see throughout the rest of the Bible. Now, what are those themes? We see the sovereignty of God, which just means that God has supreme authority. He is in ultimate control. And we see this from the very first verse of the Bible. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice that scripture just assumes God's existence. And there's no cosmic struggle here as God creates. There's no back and forth. God speaks and creation obeys. All of creation works according to his plan, his desires, and his power. He has authority over all creation. So we see God's sovereignty in Genesis 1 through 11. Then we also very quickly see the sinfulness of man. We see Adam and Eve rebel against God in chapter 3. We see that Cain kills his brother Abel in Genesis chapter 4. Then in chapter 5, we see the genealogy of Adam's descendants, and it repeats over and over again, then he died, then he died. And this shows the consequences of sin. Then we come to chapter 6, which says that the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Sin becomes so pervasive that God uses a flood to judge mankind. But God graciously preserves Noah and his family, of course, in the ark, and he gives them a fresh start after the flood. But then mankind once again falls into sin, as shown by the Tower of Babel. That's in chapter 11. And that's where mankind disobeys God's order to multiply and fill the earth. And they instead stay in one spot to try to make a name for themselves. So in Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we see the sovereignty of God. We see the rampant sinfulness of man. And we also see the promise of redemption. In Genesis 3.15, almost immediately after Adam and Eve sin. We see God make a promise that salvation will come through the offspring of Eve. And this leads us into the next section of Genesis. Looking back, Genesis 1 through 11 establishes the major themes for the rest of Scripture. God's sovereignty, the sinfulness of man, and God's plan of redemption. Then in Genesis chapter 12, the major plot of the Old Testament starts to unfold. And that plot is God's gracious covenant with Abraham and his family. Understand that in Genesis 3.15, God promises salvation. Then in Genesis chapter 12, we see that promise is channeled, in a sense, through Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites. God starts to enact his plan of salvation by graciously choosing Abraham. And God makes important promises to Abraham that really drive the plot of the rest of Scripture in many ways. So be sure to keep these promises in mind as you read Scripture. If you remember, God promises Abraham countless offspring. He promises him land and to bring a worldwide blessing through him. Genesis 12 to 25 give us that story of Abraham. And one key passage I want to highlight here is that God tests Abraham in Genesis 22 by asking him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Remember, God had promised countless descendants to Abraham, but he and his wife were older, his wife, Sarah, And she was barren. But then God miraculously allows Abraham's wife, Sarah, to conceive. And then unexpectedly, God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Abraham 
obeys, but then at the last minute, God stops Abraham and provides a ram to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. Now, there's all sorts of symbolism here that becomes important, especially when we're looking at the New Testament. Think about this. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, but instead provides a ram in his place. Compare that to Jesus, the one and only son of God, and the lamb of God who died in our place. So see the foreshadowing to Jesus here already in the book of Genesis. Then the promises made to Abraham extend to his son, Isaac. And Isaac has twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Now technically Esau is the older son who should receive his father's blessing. But Esau foolishly sells his birthright to his brother Jacob in chapter 27. Now Abraham's blessings go through Jacob, who has 12 sons who become the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapters 27 through 36 trace Jacob or Israel's story. Remember, God renames Jacob Israel, which means something like strives with God. Then chapters 37 through 50 trace Joseph's story. And Joseph is one of Jacob's sons who is sold into slavery by his brothers. There's some brotherly love for you, right? But through God's sovereignty, Joseph becomes second in command in Egypt, and he's actually able to provide for his father and for his brothers during a time of famine in the region. To recap, here at the end of the book of Genesis, Jacob and his family of about 70 people are in Egypt. So Abraham's descendants are far from countless. They aren't in the land promised to Abraham, the promised land. And they certainly haven't brought a worldwide blessing either. But God is still in control, and he is still sovereign. Now, a couple of quick notes on reading Genesis. First of all, keep in mind that Genesis wasn't written to answer every question that we might have about creation or about history in general. It was written mainly to show us who God is and to tell us about his plan of redemption for us. And also remember that the characters in these narratives and these stories and really in the rest of the Old Testament aren't mainly given for us to emulate or to follow their example. We see that all of the main characters here have flaws. Abraham lies about his wife being his sister. Jacob is known as the deceiver. And we'll see shortly that Moses misses out on the promised land because of disobedience. So these guys aren't mainly for us to emulate. Scripture gives us real stories about real people. It tells us what really happened. It tells us how it is. And it reminds us of the sinfulness of man. Man always falls short. And it reminds us that God is the true hero of the story. He is the only one that we should truly emulate. Moving on now to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. Exodus means departure. And in Exodus chapter 1, the Israelites have become so numerous that the Pharaoh of Egypt is threatened by them. And he decides to enslave them. And the Israelites are in slavery for 400 years until God raises up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. Now, God performs many miracles through Moses. You're probably familiar with some of these stories, including the the 10 plagues and the parting of the Red Sea. And God leads the people out of bondage and out of slavery through Moses. Now, this rescue from slavery is really a, a defining moment in Israel's history, and it becomes a pattern for future salvation. So it's very important for us to understand. Now, a key chapter in this salvation story is Exodus chapter 12, which describes what's known as the Passover. This is the last of the 10 plagues. 
And God tells Israel that he is going to kill the firstborn son of all people in Egypt, except for those who put the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. Now, the Israelites obey, and they put the blood of lambs on their doors, and later that night, the angel of the Lord passes over them, hence the name Passover, and they're spared from God's wrath. But the Egyptian firstborns are not spared. This is the plague that finally convinces Pharaoh to let Israel go, to let them out of slavery. By the blood of lambs, Israel is saved. See the symbolism here once again. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. That only makes sense in light of what the Old Testament tells us. If we want to understand the New Testament, we first have to understand the Old. And Jesus is crucified during the time of the Passover in the New Testament, which tells us that he is the ultimate Lamb of God by whose blood all people can be saved. Now, a couple other things to note about the book of Exodus. After Israel leaves Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai where they enter into a covenant with God and receive the law, including the Ten Commandments, from God. And at this point, the story sort of slows down a little bit as we raise the question, how can God, who is sinless and perfect, dwell in the midst of a sinful people? We see that Israel's sins need to be forgiven for them to maintain a relationship with God. So sacrifices are instituted and priests are ordained to minister in a tabernacle, which is basically just a portable temple. It's the place where God dwells among Israel. But Israel must be faithful to the law and to the covenant. The law shows God's righteous standard if Israel is to maintain a relationship with him. And if they are faithful, God will dwell with them and will bless them as they dwell in the promised land. And they will be an example to the nations as to what it looks like to live under God's rule. But if they aren't faithful, they will face judgment. Israel's faithfulness to the law, or the lack thereof, will ultimately drive the rest of the story of the Old Testament. So keep this law and this covenant in mind as we continue to go along here. Now, speaking of the law, let's look at the book of Leviticus. Leviticus gives us more details about the law that Israel received on Mount Sinai. And because of that, it doesn't really advance the story. It just gives us more details about the story. But there are, again, very important themes here. Again, this book is answering the question, how can a holy God dwell among a sinful people? Now, the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 17, talk about how Israel can have fellowship with God through ritual offerings and sacrifices. The second half of the book, chapters 18 through 27, talk about Israel's fellowship with God through righteous living. Understand that Israel's relationship with God was never just about sacrifices and rituals. God has always wanted our hearts and our obedience. Now, there's one key chapter in the book. It's chapter 16, which describes the Day of Atonement, also called Yom Kippur. Atone is a word that means to cover, and it's used 45 different times in the book of Leviticus, so clearly it's very important because for sinful people to have fellowship with God, our sin must be covered. And that's what the Day of Atonement represents. On this day, the high priest would offer sacrifices for the sins of Israel, and he would enter into what was known as the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, the place where God's presence dwelled. It was the only day of the year where someone could enter God's presence directly. But in order to do this, the high priest had to offer a blood sacrifice because in order to cover sins or to atone for sins, blood has to be shed. 
We see this in Leviticus 17.11. Now, when the high priest entered the Holy of Holies, he would actually wear bells on his garments, on his robe, so that the people listening could tell if he was still alive and make sure that he hadn't been struck down in the presence of God. Imagine the tension in that scene. Now, that situation might sound strange to our ears, but don't miss the application here. First, sin is serious. The entire book centers around how sinful people can dwell in God's presence. Sin is not something to be taken lightly. Second, God is holy, and only a worthy sacrifice permits access into his presence. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the only worthy sacrifice that can truly give us access to God's presence. And finally, God is gracious. Even though sin is serious and God is holy, God has graciously made a way for us to atone and to cover our sins. And this will be a theme that we see throughout the rest of Scripture. Then we come to the book of Numbers, and it's called Numbers because of the census accounts that you see of the Israelites in chapters 1 through 4 and chapters 26 and 27. They number the men of war in those chapters. Now, the overarching theme here is that God honors faith and punishes unbelief. Remember the key event here. The Israelites leave Mount Sinai and they come to the edge of the promised land at a city called Kadesh Barnea, and that's in Numbers chapter 13. And from here, they send 12 spies into the land for 40 days to scout it out. Now, 10 of them come back with a negative report saying there are giants in the land and the cities are fortified and there's no way we can take this land. Only two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, actually trust God. The Israelites, of course, listen to the ten spies and they turn their backs on God. As a result, God causes them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years, one year for every day that the spies were in the land, until the entire older generation dies off. At the heart of this failure is ultimately a lack of trust or a lack of faith in God and in his promises. And in fact, we see six main failures of the people in the book of Numbers all stemming from a lack of faith. We see them complaining in chapters 10 through 12. We see them rebelling at Kadesh Barnea, which I just talked about in chapters 13 and 14. We see them rebelling against Moses and Aaron's leadership in chapters 15 through 19. Then we see Moses' disobedience in chapter 20, which ultimately causes him to miss out on the promised land. We see the people complaining once again in chapter 21. We see them committing adultery and immorality in chapter 25. But we see that through all of this, God is faithful. Despite his people's repeated failure, God will still accomplish his promises, and he's going to do it through the next generation. And speaking of the next generation, we now come to the book of Deuteronomy. Remember that at the end of the book of Numbers, Israel is encamped at Moab, which is just east of the promised land. And it's here that Moses gives the law to the younger generation. The older generation has died off because of their disobedience, and the younger generation hasn't seen all the miracles that God performed in bringing Israel out of Egypt. So Moses gives the law a second time, and this is recorded in Deuteronomy, which means second law. Now, like Leviticus, it doesn't do much to advance the story. This is more a renewal of the covenant before the new generation takes the promised land. Now, we're not going to get into Deuteronomy in a lot of detail here for the sake of time, but keep in mind the challenge facing Israel here. This is a new generation about to be under the new leadership of Joshua, and they're about to enter a new land with fortified cities. 
This was a major test of faith. Also see that God calls the Israelites not just to external obedience, but to love. In what's probably the most well-known passage in Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 4 and 5, it says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Again, God wants our hearts, not just our external rituals. And finally, make sure you read Deuteronomy carefully. It's the most quoted book in the Bible. It's quoted 356 times, including 190 times in just the New Testament. If we want to understand the rest of Scripture, we need to make sure that we understand Deuteronomy. So that's the Pentateuch. Those are the first five books of the Bible. Remember, these books lay the foundation for everything else that we're going to talk about moving forward. We see the major themes of Scripture throughout these books. We see the sinfulness of man. Mankind fails again and again. We also see the law, which is God's righteous standard that Israel will be held to throughout the rest of the Old Testament story. It's a law that Israel repeatedly fails to keep, but God in his sovereignty and by his grace still enacts his plan of salvation. Not because of what man has done, but actually in spite of it. And we'll see more how that story unfolds in the weeks ahead. But for now, remember why we're equipping you with this information in the first place. We're not giving you this information just so you can have head knowledge but ultimately so that you can be equipped to make disciples who make disciples and so that you can make Jesus' final words your first work. 